Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. We have a fun show today. First, we're talking to the founder of This App Saves Lives about why and how his app saves lives, specifically cyclist lives. And then we have the second in our Olympian interviews for the month. We're talking to Summer Rappaport, who locked down her Tokyo qualification two long years ago and has had to wait and wait. She tells us how she refound some fun last year, what she's been practicing, how she thinks the Tokyo race will play out, and how she's trying to balance eight suitcases and two bikes on her way to Japan. All of that after this break. Power your next adventure with Outside Plus. Our Outside Plus membership gives you access not just to exclusive triathlete content, but to content across all our network brands like Backpacker, Velo News, Outside Magazine, and Trail Runner. With an annual membership, you get two magazine subscriptions, two Velo Press books, a library of resources like yoga journal meditation classes and clean eating meal plans, gear and event discounts, access to Gaia GPS dozens of training plans through today's plan software and a free finisher picks package each year all for just $99 this is the world's best resource for training nutrition know-how and how to join at triathlete.com backslash outside plus that's outside plus one word dot com All right, we're talking with Ryan Frankel, who co-founded the app called This App Saves Lives. And Ryan, you started this because you actually got hit by someone who was texting on their phone while you were biking, right? Uh, close to being hit. I, I was actually very lucky, uh, Kelly, to see the driver coming towards me. Uh, so I was able to avoid the direct collision. But in attempting to avoid the car, I flipped over my handlebars, fractured my hip, my elbow, and, and quite a number of other bones in my body. And, uh, and when you... I mean, we've all, not we've all, but many of us have had close calls with cars. But when you came back, you kind of wanted to do something about it. What did you find as you were looking into, you know, the research and like what would help? Yeah, so it's interesting. A lot of the, there's there's definitely been efforts in the past, just given the magnitude of the problem that is distracted driving to solve it. But most of those efforts have centered on blocking one's ability to use certain technology when they're behind the wheel. Um, and mm -hmm. what we found is that people don't like to be told what not to do. And so um, no surprise there. Uh, what if you flip that on its head and instead of telling people what they can't do and, and preventing them from taking certain actions, what if you rewarded them for the decisions that they do make? And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, despite the tremendous progress in legislation taking place around the country, your chances of being caught driving distracted are pretty low. And so um, that kind of speaks towards the, the importance of using rewards, not punishments to drive such an important behavioral change. And so what you're saying is uh, the app essentially, I mean, you sign up for it, you download it. And if you don't use your phone while you're driving, you earn points and you can get rewarded. I mean, there's a bunch of different partners, right? Essentially you get like gift card in essence. Yeah, so the app, it's called This App Saves Lives, or Tassel for short. It's available in the Apple App Store. And when you download it once and you set up your account, effectively, you can you can forget it. It runs in the background each time you start moving above a certain rate of speed. And the, the unique technology that we built knows what you're doing on your phone when you're driving, such that we can issue you rewards points for the time that you spend driving undistracted, using your phone for hands-free phone calls, 
um, navigation or streaming your favorite music or podcast is, is absolutely fine. But the second that you go to kind of meaningfully interact with your phone, Kelly, to send a text, to browse the web, to check your email, to scroll through your Strava, um, that's when we, we are able to recognize that as a distraction. And when we recognize a distraction, not only do you stop earning points, we actually take some points away. And the net effect of all of this is that after each ride or over time, you accumulate all of these points, which are then redeemable for all of these great incentives sponsored by companies around the country. And, uh, well, one, I mean, I guess how effective is it is kind of what I was about to ask, but how many people do you have, uh, kind of on there so far? And and do you think it's really changing their behavior? Very exciting. So we just got started in 2020. We've got tens of thousands of drivers here in the U S and by the way, we have cyclists on it as well, because (laughs) as long as you're moving above 10 miles an hour, the app automatically kicks in. And so certainly don't want cyclists, you know, looking out on their phone when they're, when they're on the road. And so, um, we've got cyclists, motorists, um, not, not a whole lot of runners, but, uh, but, but a whole host of other individuals in between. And um, we've got about 80 or so brand partners. Um, we actually have drivers on every single, in every single country. Um, but hmm. that was not by design. That was just total luck, some good press. Um, but we're growing fast and we're already starting to see a difference. And I, and I love your question. I mean, we're, we're, we're able to use the, the, the data that we gather um, to show that drivers that, cu- that come in day one, and then we look at them six months later, you see marketed improvements in safe driving behavior, which is really exciting. Really? How, so you can tell that just by they're using their phone less? You can tell because their, their percentage of time driven distracted versus undistracted, it actually improves. And so we don't, we don't look at individuals, we don't monitor individual data, but we can mm-hmm. look at an aggregate population and say, okay, let's look at this group that came in day one. And then let's look at them, that same group, six months down the line. What is their percentage of time driving undistracted versus distracted look like? And you actually see a pretty healthy uptick in, in percentage of time driven undistracted. Is distracted driving, uh, I was going to say, like, really that big a problem? Is it the biggest problem with, you know, cyclist safety? Uh, there's certainly also, you know, active hostile driving out there. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've been subject to some hostile driving. I've had someone throw a beer at me before, um, right. and we've all been there. But certainly, distracted driving is, is is a huge problem. It's actually a problem that's that's getting worse. Uh, and so, what what you find is that COVID itself, as well, has made our our technology addiction higher than higher than it ever has been in the past. You've got more co- people opting for the the relative safety of their cars in place of public transportation for fear of COVID. So you've got more drivers on the road, more people addicted to technology and more people trying to buy cycling, right? I mean, where I, where I live in Philadelphia, you can't, you can't buy a bike right now. There's so many cyclists. And so it's kind of that perfect storm. Um, So it is a pretty huge problem for cyclists. Wouldn't more cyclists be a good thing? Like most, most stats suggest when there's a, certain mass critical mass of bikers on the road, it actually helps road safety, right? Uh, There are studies that show that in general, um, I still see a lot of rage out there. Um, Right. There's a lot of of rage out there towards cyclists. You definitely in certain, certainly in the cities in which we live, it's out there. The challenge of course, is that you still have quite a number of motorists and motorists who are more addicted to tech now than ever. And so how do we prevent, you know, more accidents um, and we're seeing it in the data right now. There, there is an uptick in distracted driving-related accidents. 
So when you say you're seeing it in the data right now, we know that from like your guys' app or from other tracking or uh, some other way? The National Highway Transportation Safety Administration mm-hmm. publishes this data fairly regularly. Um, insurance companies look at this quite closely. Mm-hmm. Law firms look at it as well. When you look at the key stakeholders, even cities are starting to track it right now. That way, you know, when they're trying to make improvements in infrastructure to make, make room for cyclists, that data is hugely important. So it's published across um, several different uh, channels. Got it. And so when we talk about distracted driving, obviously you're talking primarily about uh, being distracted by cell phones. Is there other kinds of distracted driving? There's all sorts of distracted driving. <laughs> well, distracted driving in general refers to the phone, but, you know, shaving when you're behind the wheel, putting your, your makeup <laughs> and your lipstick. And we've all, we, I see, I've seen it all. You've seen it all. Um, eating while behind the wheel. Um, you know, there are all sorts of forms of distraction. And, uh, I, I mean, we're focused on the cell phone one right now. How, uh, or you are, how are you getting more and more people to, 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 I mean, it's ultimately we need everyone to download the app, right? Like that's the, that's the plan. That's the goal is to blanket the country and, and make, you know, be a force for change and making distracted driving a habit of the past. And there is some, some level of excitement of, you know, earning rewards, you know, for doing what we should all be doing all along. Um, and the way we're kind of growing is this is, this is something people love to share. I mean, how cool is it that you can literally go out right now, go for a drive without having to, to open up your wallet, earn all of these great products and incentives, free food, apparel, um, services, gym memberships, uh, you name it just for driving safely. And so, um, you know, we, this is a product people love to share. So word of mouth growth is big for us. Um, a lot of our brand partners, the companies that sponsor the rewards, the Shake Shacks of the world, the Urban Outfitters, the Obey Fitnesses, um, they are also um, sharing Tassel and their pride of partnering with Tassel with their own audiences, which really helps. Um, we partner with schools. When you look at the data, unfortunately, high school and college age students they do represent a disproportionate percentage of fatalities from distracted driving. And Mm -hmm. so by getting an early before a habit really sets hold, we can partner with these students, partner with the schools and the administrations that really helps us get the name out there. And then certainly when you think about who also benefits from, from reductions in distracted driving insurance companies, um, employers that employ fleets of drivers on the road. um, Those are some of the bigger opportunities for us in terms of getting getting the word out there and putting this app saves lives in, in the most number of drivers. How are you guys as a, I mean, obviously this isn't the goal, but how are you making money? How are you staying afloat? Is it like grants? Are you a nonprofit? We charge the the companies that sponsor mm. the incentives for exposure to our audience. And so when all of our drivers earn these, these tassel points um, and they redeem them for, let's say uh, half off your order at Shake Shack and they go into their local Shake Shack you know, they're going to also, you know, they're going to buy enough product that Shake Shack is going to make money off of them. Or if Shake Shack currently offers a free milkshake with any order, uh, if you're like me, you're going to go into Shake Shack. You're going to buy a burger while you're there. You're going to buy fries. Maybe you'll buy, <laughs> I'll buy my daughter, my two-year-old daughter, uh, you know, a burger as well. And so right. Shake Shack has just acquired me as a customer. Um, and also Shake Shack is positioning itself as a really great corporate citizen. And so we charge brands for that dual benefit. Got it. Okay. And obviously we've been talking a lot about the stats on increased distracted driving on, you know, this whole part of the problem. Do you think overall the issue of like cyclist safety on the road has gotten better or worse? It seems like it's gotten worse. It it seems like it's gotten worse. Um, 
I don't have a ton of data at, at my disposal to see what it looks like. I think that if cyclists as a percentage of the total population of distracted driving related um, recipients is, is accurate. I mean, it's, we are seeing an uptick in distracted driving related accidents. And so naturally that may result in a, in a higher percentage of cyclists involved. Um, but you're also seeing more cyclists on the road. You know, people right. are, people are living healthier, more healthy and active lifestyles. They're opting for, you know, commuting to their, their offices in place of, of driving. And so um, with the number of cyclists out there on the road today relative to what it used to be, there is certainly um, more accidents taking place as far as we can tell. All right, here's my last question then for you. Are you still riding on the road? Obviously, a lot of people have gotten nervous and they've just gone to dirt. Are you still are you still biking? I still ride on the road. It's my passion. It's my love. Um, but my risk profile has changed. Uh, having, been a, having been a victim, um, having had so many close calls as well, um, it, the risk reward for me is certainly a, a bit different than it was when I was training for my first Ironman. Um, mm-hmm. and I have a daughter now, a two year old, um, and the things that I care about in life have, have changed. And so, um, I still ride on the road, but don't get me wrong. I think about the driver next to me every single second along the way. Um, it's something that just, maybe it's because this is what I do for a living, but, um, but distracted driving is always at the forefront of my mind. Yeah, I mean, probably, probably a little bit because of what you do for a living too. <laughs> How about yourself? Do you? Uh... Oh, I always ride outside. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to us. And uh, again, it's this app saves lives. People can get it on iPhone. Uh, it's not an Android yet, right? Correct. Only on iOS today. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, and good luck with with everything. Thank you for having me. Um, Pleasure to be here. All right. This week, we're talking to Summer Rappaport, who was the first American to qualify for the Olympics. You qualified almost two years ago now in August 2019. Has that made it more stressful or less stressful for the last two years? Definitely less stressful. Um... Yeah, I mean, I always knew that the Tokyo test event would be my best opportunity to qualify. There were more spots up for grabs at the Tokyo test event than at um, the second qualification event in Yokohama. So, I mean, there was already a better chance. And I, I've had, in the past, strong results in heat and humidity. So I was also looking at that as an event where um, I should be physiologically primed to perform in, hopefully. Um but yeah, it turned out it was extra important to get the qualification there just because everything was so up in the air with um, COVID and then the the shortened second half of the qualification period um, and only having a few events for right. athletes to prove themselves in the second or in 2021. But then you also, on the other hand, you had two years to wait for the Olympics. Was that good or bad? Have you What have you been doing with the extra time? What have you been like working on in that time? Um, almost immediately after, uh, everything was kind of postponed in 2020, my coach cut down our training load a lot and I still tried to really hit like my harder key sessions, but I just tried to have fun with my easier sessions and enjoy the sport a little bit more. And I feel like I'm in, um, like the best place mentally with sport that I've ever been as a, as the result of the pandemic, I guess you could say (laughs) just from, uh, 
I guess like really being able to like play as an athlete a little bit in a way that I haven't since I was a kid. Um, so I was away from my coach and my training partners from March 2020 to January of this year when we resumed training camp in Portugal. And I just felt so much more uh, mentally ready to be with the group and hit key sessions. And I just felt like sessions that were um, typically challenging for me, I was able to take them in stride a little bit more and have big gains from them just because um, I was just enjoying what I was doing more. Like my, my perspective really changed. And I think you told me before, basically last year, like when you were on your way to the start of the season in Abu Dhabi, it got canceled. And so you ended up coming home. So when you say you weren't with your training group, you actually were like in the U.S. with your husband. For a change. <laughs> yeah. Which um, is definitely good from like a normal life perspective, but it's definitely harder from a training perspective because I do feel like I've been able to make the gains that I've made as an athlete by being 100% committed to being in a daily training environment with my coach and my training partners who push me every day. And it was really hard to work on some of uh, my biggest challenges in the sport by myself. What did you, and I mean, that was the first time you and your husband pretty much really had like that, like eight months or whatever together since you got married. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're like, is that good or bad? Like So about six weeks before we got married, my coach told me that we were switching to more of um, from being based in California to being more of a camp based uh, training environment. And then um, about six weeks after my husband and I got married, I went to my first, um, I guess it wasn't my first international training camp, but like my first January international training camp, that was like the start of like, being away for a big chunk of 2019. Um, so yeah, we had, we never really had like the newlywed experience. So I feel like we got it almost a year and a half later. So, uh, yeah. and was that good? Like, it seems like, I mean, then you like actually get to like, cause he does triathlon too, right? So did he do your training with you? He did my training with me on weekends. He has a normal nine to five job. So he's not super available on the weekdays. Um, he just tries to squeeze in what he can Monday to Friday. And he does a lot of training on the weekends. But it was nice to be able to train together and share that with each other. Um, and I guess it was also good because, uh, especially in the beginning, because I was able to be really flexible with my schedule so we could kind of maximize our time together. When you say that you had more fun last year, what is like a, a fun week look like as opposed to like a super serious week? Well, I guess I was... I, I was doing less training. I would say my typical training was 25 to 30 hours per week. I was still doing two hard swims, two hard runs, and two hard bikes per week. But on the easier sessions, sometimes I would do like a single track trail run, where normally during the season, I would be too afraid of spraining my ankle or having a fall. And I actually mountain biked a little okay. bit last summer and then quite a bit um, in October and November last year. The first time I ever mountain biked was on my honeymoon in November of 2019. So also because of the triathlon schedule, my husband and I took our honeymoon a full year later than <laughs> our wedding. Uh, and we went mountain biking. Um, it was my first time and it was, my husband hadn't been too many times either. Um, and I, we, I really enjoyed it. And my husband has his own mountain bike. So I took his out a few times and I was like, Hey, I kind of want to get my own so we can ride together. So 
I ended up getting my own and we were able to do some really nice rides together. So it was just a lot of fun to be able to, to play and kind of like bike for myself instead of biking Mm -hmm. for performance, because my whole cycling is the last sport that I took up. I, I swam from when I was nine years old and I started running in college and I didn't start cycling at all until after college. I knew nothing about bikes or biking. Um, and I came into triathlon through USA triathlon's collegiate recruitment program. So the first time I touched, like rode a road bike was my first day in the program. Um, so I feel like my entire time on a bike has been trying to perform and trying to be the best cyclist I can be. And like, I totally skipped the enjoyment phase of cycling and I actually <laughs> finally got there last year and that was really good. I was actually going to ask you if you had ever, cause you obviously a collegiate swimmer and runner and like, I mean, it's pretty well known, right? Like you took up biking. So you had never biked before. Like how hard you had to like completely learn like kid in a parking lot style. Yeah, we started with skills in a parking lot. I mean, from the time that I was like nine or 10 years old to when I started with the collegiate recruitment program, I could probably count the number of times I had ridden on two hands. <laughs> I mean, I was I was very involved in my swim program, so I didn't really have a lot of time outside my swim program in my school. Like I in high school, I was taking a lot of AP classes on top of right. swimming. 10 times a week. So I just, I didn't have time for anything like that. And I didn't really know anyone who wrote or anything like that. So I just never got into it. <laughs> how hard was it to learn how to ride a bike as an adult? It was pretty difficult, especially since what we started with like immediately was kind of like learning like the basic skill components with um, like that would be needed for ITU cycling. Mm -hmm. Um, so I felt like I was always like being asked to do things that were like a few steps ahead of where I was at, where I was like, I would learn one thing and I do it once. And then we would kind of just like move on to the next, like one, two, three things instead of like mastering anything. So I feel like I was just on a accelerated learning curve that was going too fast for me. And I feel like over time, like I was able to kind of like close that, but it was never really a lot of fun because I was always chasing a, a moving target. Right. Did you crash a lot? I would imagine I would like, cause when everyone learns to write, they tip over a lot. They fall a lot. A little bit, but actually like, I would actually say that that's like one of the problems is that like, sometimes I don't push myself hard enough to crash. Um, um, instead of finding my limit, it's, it's easier for me to stay where I'm comfortable. So that's something that I've worked a lot on. And that's something that the mountain bike helped with a little bit. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because like, obviously, ITU, I mean, it's very pack, bike pack, bike skills heavy. And so you have to kind of like push yourself, right? Yeah. And it's very, it's very skills heavy. Uh, A lot of fast cornering, being close to people, uh, just, just a very dynamic event. I you obviously you learned all this because you got recruited in the college recruitment program because you swam and ran in college. So like you said, you were a swimmer since you were nine and you swam at Villanova, but then you walked on to the track and cross country team just like halfway through college. How does that even happen? So I was looking for a new challenge after my freshman year of swimming. So the swimming season ended end of February, I went home for spring break and I just, I really wanted to do something new. I was pretty burned out on swimming. So I signed up for a 10 mile road race because that's what my idea of fun is. 
and I trained pretty seriously for it. And I mean, I didn't do intervals or anything, but I like wrote my own training plan of like building up my mileage. And I'm, okay. I was very committed to sticking to it. Um, and my swim coach, who was a triathlete, recognized that my time was pretty good. And he encouraged me to talk to the cross country and track and field coach about walking onto the team. And she gave me a list of time standards and said, if I hit one of them, I could. So one day after uh, the weight room, my coach took me out on the track and I ran a two mile time trial and I hit the time. What was the time? I don't remember what the standard was, but I remember running around 11 minutes. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. I feel looking back at it, what I think is impressive is that I did it at like 630 in the morning after weight room. Like more (laughs) impressive than anything. Because there's no way now, like if my coach made me do that now, I would just be like, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) So then you were doing both sports. How hard is it to do? I mean, obviously people do it, but to do, I guess it's like cross country swimming and then track, like all three seasons in in and Villanova is like a big school. You had a heavy course load, I'm assuming. It seems like a lot. Yeah. So yeah. I guess I kind of added a season each year. Um, I did just swimming my freshman year. I did swimming and outdoor track my sophomore year. I did cross country swimming and outdoor track my junior year and cross country, indoor and outdoor track and swimming my senior year. So my senior year was really crazy, but I feel like it also kind of gradually got added on instead of all at once, which helps. I think the, biggest challenge was um like every weekend my senior year especially during the winter was taken up with some kind of competition so I was always on Mm. the road and that just made my course load so difficult and at that point I at least had enough uh, school credits where my course load was a little bit lighter than it had been my freshman and sophomore year so that made it more manageable but I I remember writing so many papers on buses just to desperately try to keep up. It was crazy. What did you study? Uh, I studied political science. Okay. So completely not related to triathlon at all. Completely not related to triathlon. What were you going to do before you decided to do triathlon then? Um, I wanted to be a political speechwriter. So I had a few internships. Um, I grew up in Colorado. I always went home to Colorado for the summer, and I had two internships in the Colorado governor's office where I worked in the communications office. And okay. I was also a really big fan of the West Wing growing up. Right. I was I about to it. ask if that was where yeah. this came from. <laughs> <laughs> so you were going to be a political speechwriter. Do you ever use those skills now? Um like to write no. speech. I mean, no. no. <laughs> when I first started triathlon, I blogged quite a bit, but then I just haven't had time to keep up with that. But when I did, I really enjoyed just writing and feeling like I was using my brain. Do you not feel like you're using your brain now? It's definitely different. Like I kind <laughs> of miss having the structure Another thing that I did during COVID was I took free online classes from uh, edX and I actually Uh really enjoyed learning again. (laughs) So instead of becoming a political speech writer, I mean, the USAT college recruitment program came and found you, right? How does that, I mean, I know they keep their eye out for anyone who has like running and swimming. 
how does that work? Are they just like scrolling all the times? Do they like call you up one day? My swim coach actually contacted Barb Winquist, who was at the time the collegiate recruitment program coordinator. He had met her mm. at, I believe, an NCAA swim meet or um, one of the coaches' conventions. And he actually put me in touch with her. And that's how I got connected to the program. And since my swim coach was a triathlete, he was always really pushing me to be a triathlete. And I'm <laughs> glad he did because it worked out all right. <laughs> And once they like recruit you into the program, I mean, that's when they teach you how to bike and they kind of put you up at a camp and give you a coach, right? Yeah. So when I first started in the collegiate recruitment program, which was the summer of 2013, the program was based at the um, Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And then Mm -hmm. about halfway through the program moved to Scottsdale, Arizona where it remained for a few more years. Um, But yeah, one of the benefits of the program is you come in with other athletes with a similar background who are running the sport and starting to get um, their feet wet in ITU competitions. Um, So it's kind of a a very immersive learning experience. It also seems like, I mean, almost all of the women I talked to on the ITU circuit from the U S came through the college recruitment program. Does is everyone like, is it basically everyone who comes at this little camp then turns out to be an Olympian or do some people decide it's not worth it or it's not for them? Um, there's definitely some people who don't, who start with the collegiate recruitment program and realize that it's not for them. It's a very, um, it's a very intense program and in very intense environment. That's definitely not for everybody. Um, and now I feel like our national team is actually split where it's, I believe we have six women on the national team and four are from the collegiate recruitment program and two are from the junior program. Right. So, yeah. This year there is like kind of a mix. There's a couple of people on the Olympic squad who came up junior elite and a couple like college recruitment and it's a mix of people. Yeah. It's a mix. It's, it's good to have a lot of different perspectives. I feel like that helps keep us competitive and, um, really moving forward. And that's one of the reasons why the U S women are some of the strongest in the sport. Does that ever get, I mean, I've asked almost everybody this, but is that ever stressful that the U S you know, the U S women, you basically have to like be one of the best in the world, even to make the team that you, you know, it is one of the hardest teams to make. Do you ever like, man, I just wish I worked I competed for a smaller country. It's definitely challenging. And what people, I think a lot of people don't realize is there's not just the challenge of qualifying for the Olympic team. There's only five athletes who can automatically get a start for any, or for WTS and World Cup events. And for WTS events, it's very difficult to get a a start if you're the sixth ranked US Mm -hmm. woman or lower. And for us, the sixth ranked woman is often in the 20s or 30s. Like in, in the world, the ITU points ranking in the world. Right. So, but they it's can't even to, get a start. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, these are athletes that could be competing in these races if they were from any, almost any other country. And these are also the races that are critical to earning the opportunity to keep compete for an Olympic spot. So, right. So it's like a it's like a, a circle almost. It's like hard to to break in. Yeah, it's hard to break in, but. I think that that's also one of the reasons why our program is so strong. The bar is constantly being raised because people are pushing harder and harder to get in. So it's making everybody better. Right. 
So after you kind of like were in this boot camp college recruitment, I mean, do they then like send you out in the world like good luck now? Or, you know, how does it how do you kind of progress from there? Um, so for me personally, when I was finished with the collegiate recruitment program, USAT made a few recommendations for coaches that they thought might be a good fit for me. And um, I ultimately chose to be coached by Paula Sousa, who almost seven years later, I'm still coached by. Um, so yeah, I've been with Polo and the triathlon squad since the end of 2014. And you guys, uh, were based in San Diego, but you're now based in Portugal. So you're traveling all around the world all the time, right? Yeah. And normally in a non COVID year, we would have some altitude camps and some camps at different locations with good proximity to races, Mm -hmm. um, just to ease the travel burden a little bit, but it's been, um, yeah, difficult with the COVID situation. And we've had reliable access to training here, even during lockdowns. And also, most importantly, all of the athletes have been able to get the exemptions to get into Portugal. Um, so we've been able to have an international squad here without any major issues. What? How much luggage do you bring when you like leave for the year? Well, I normally have a small suitcase <laughs> with my clothes. A big suitcase with my portable bike trainer, my pump, my wetsuit, some clothes that I couldn't fit into the small suitcase, my bike case, and then I have a pretty big backpack. Um, It's funny that you asked this question because right now my biggest issue is how much stuff am I going to have when I leave Portugal? So I'm flying to Tokyo with a bike, a carbon repaired bike frame, which is another story but as a backup bike in case i have problems um in travel you're gonna take two bikes okay yeah um a bunch of bike parts my big suitcase my small suitcase and my backpack and then my understanding is that i'm going to receive two suitcases full of olympic gear because we can only use team usa issued gear at the games so yeah i'm sorting out my luggage situation at the moment (laughs) (laughs) all right so you're gonna fly from portugal to tokyo with it sounds like seven bags yeah in tokyo okay get two more bags (laughs) and then you're gonna love me (laughs) yeah and then obviously if everyone's flying together that's a lot of stuff on one plane yeah um (laughs) that was actually a little bit of an issue for some athletes coming from going to the Yokohama event because there were only two options. So we all had to arrive to Tokyo, fly into Tokyo and arrive on May. I believe it was May 11th. It was the same day that we all had to come elite and paratriathletes. And there were only two flight options from Europe that got athletes in on that day. So it was a huge problem with luggage for a few athletes for that event. Yeah, I've heard people tell, because you have to like make sure there's only so many bikes that can fit on a yeah. plane. And so you have to like check with the airline and everything. Yeah. And I mean, almost nobody is allowed into Japan right now. So most right. of the people on our plane were athletes or coaches. <laughs> is so. that stressful or fun? Um, well, when we realized how many athletes were on our flight, it was a little bit stressful where we knew not all the bikes were going to make it on. And we were just hoping that ours would (laughs) (laughs) like, Oh no. 
I think so, I think it'll be a little bit better for Tokyo because I know some countries are operating charter flights for their athletes. Oh, really? Um, and there's more flexibility with when we can arrive where some athletes might choose to go to a training camp with their federation or arrive um, like right on the first day that we're allowed to come or come a day or two later. So it'll at least be more spread out across flights this time. I was going to say, is the COVID, obviously Yokohama, it was like super, super strict and you like couldn't even leave the hotel room. Japan, are they just like limiting you to the village or are you going to be stuck in a room for a week before the race? My understanding is that we're limited to the village, but there might be exceptions to that. Okay. I think that we're not supposed to do much for the first three days after, but we're still waiting for some further clarification. And I think it may also depend on what countries athletes are coming from because there's going to be more rules applied to athletes coming from countries with a high uh, instance of the Delta variant. Oh, the Delta variant. Okay. How much is like managing all these COVID protocols and paperwork going to be like a factor in the race? I feel like at this point it's, I don't want to say it's a non-factor, but I feel (laughs) like going through all of this for Yokohama, it was really good preparation for this where we didn't even have our um, invitation to apply for our visa to Yokohama until 10 days before departure. So I think going through that process and seeing that, hey, it's it's going to be okay, like it's possible, like we can get everything taken care of, like we'll get the information in time. It might not be ideal, but like we'll have it, we'll have everything in time. That's been, that was a really reassuring experience. Is that part of why you chose to race Yokohama, even though you, I mean, Yokohama, like you said, was the second qualification event, but you already had your spot. So you Mm -hmm. didn't have to race it. Um, Was that why you chose to, to kind of like practice and test that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I knew that there would be some differences between a small, like relatively small event like Yokohama and an Olympic games, but just going through the airport processes because um, the roles in Japan are, you get an antigen test on arrival at the airport. They say that can take between one to four hours after you get it to get results. And there's just like a lot of questions about like going through all of these processes, seeing the rules. And I mean, there's been a lot of press about the Olympics, about um, like negative press about um, how the Japanese feel about hosting the Olympics. So I think just kind of like going and feeling it out was really good and really reassuring. Um, and I would say it was overall a really positive experience. Um, everything was much smoother and better organized than I could have imagined um, under the rules. Like everything worked like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really reassuring, especially um, going into the games. Have you gotten any comments, positive or negative, from like people in Japan? Because um, we've done a little bit of reporting, but it does seem a little mixed. Yeah. I would say that the people that I had, I mean, we weren't really allowed to have contact with anyone in Japan, but Mm -hmm. I mean, we interacted with like the race staff and people at the airport. And we even had some spectators at the event in Yokohama. And I mean, I think that that was, everybody was just like very friendly and supportive. And I think that that was really encouraging because if you read the press, um, everything is so negative and that's not what it felt like at all. So uh, going into Tokyo, obviously you have all of this like COVID stuff and it's like a very weird game. So you had to wait an extra year. How has the extra year changed how the race itself will play out? Like we're seeing different people now, right? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely uh, difficult to predict how it'll play out. 
I think that one of the things that um, is difficult to understand about ITU if you've never raced ITU is that the sport is very dynamic and every year it changes because Mm -hmm. different athletes come up. uh, People have different strengths and different weaknesses. Some people have figured out that if they, they push this discipline, like they can really like break apart the field and that really works in a way that can net them podiums. Or if, yeah, people figure out different strategies that works for them and then that can make them difficult to beat or it can make um, packs totally splinter where you're just seeing different people in different places. So it's difficult to say because the other thing is we haven't really had a field where all of the athletes are together right. since Gasson 2019 because we haven't had Australians, we haven't had Kiwis. Um, some of the top athletes chose to sit out Yokohama and or Leeds. So it's definitely going to be a more, uh, I would say, unpredictable event than 2020 might have been. What's just your, like, obviously then you've thought through all the different possible race scenarios. What's your, like, ideal way it plays out? Um, I'm trying to stay mentally flexible with how it plays out. Okay. I've been I've been working really hard on improving my weaknesses and also honing in on my strengths. So I've been doing my best to be able to be um, – an all-around competitor for whatever is thrown at me. Uh, I will say that I expect it to be a very, very high pace on the swim and the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that that's that's the scenario that a lot of us are expecting. I would be shocked if there aren't like breakaways that try to happen. I think bike. I think that that's a very likely scenario. <laughs> and then with where some of the other strong bikers who we haven't seen in recent WTS events might come out of the water, then there's probably also going to be um, a strong pull from further back in the field. Huh? How much do you spend? I mean, obviously you, like you said, you, you know, you train your weaknesses, you train your strengths, you do all this. How much do you spend on like all this other like prepping stuff, like thinking about strategy and logistics and like where a brace going to get away and prepping for the heat and all that kind of stuff? Um, well, we've actually been doing heat protocol since, I mean, we did some in 2019 before the test event, but we kind of refined our protocol starting in February, 2020, took a break due to COVID and restarted in February or March of this year and have been in another, um, I would say pretty intense, uh, heat training block since, uh, we, uh, returned to camp after races in the beginning of June, Um, so that's been a big focus. And I also spend quite a bit of time working with two different sports psychologists on mindfulness and visualization Mm -hmm. training. And that kind of helps me be, um, mentally flexible with race scenarios and also open to exploring my potential and what I'm capable of. Um, and it has, it's also helped me, um, I would say learn the bike courses a little bit better and become familiar with some of the positive and negative emotions that I might feel during the races, which helps me better prepare. Um, and it's made me better able to handle, I guess, whatever comes up. All right. So you, so you're like working with different things. When you say heat protocols, what is that? Are you like sitting in a sauna? What does that entail? Um, so in 2019, My training group did a lot of passive heat prep, like sitting in the sauna or the hot tub. Um, And the last two years, it's been active heat prep where we've been cycling in a room set to Tokyo heat and humidity. And um, there's different, there's like different rules where if you hit a certain temperature, you're allowed to to pedal easier. If you 
go too high, then you have to completely stop pedaling until you pull back down. It's kind of trying to find a balance between getting used to the heat and also not overdoing it because one of the the flip sides to heat training is it's really easy to dig yourself into a hole that you can't get out of. I mean, in the race too, right? Yeah, in the race too. How are you prepping for the hot water? Because that's something that um, I've talked to a couple of the athletes about that I don't think spectators really realize that like the water itself is yeah what, the water is the worst part. Days, <laughs> water's the worst. Part. <laughs> no, actually, I think that the place that I felt the worst in the Tokyo Test event was the swim, and I was second out of the water, so I didn't have a bad swim. Um, <laughs> is it just yeah, like the was, like how hot it is? Yeah, the water is close mm-hmm. to ninety degrees Fahrenheit. And they have been able to install some sort of water cooling device, but they're only allowed to use it if it's close to the threshold because of the environmental concerns is my, is my understanding. A water cooling device. Um, yeah, because there's the open water swim is also at the same venue. Uh, so I okay. think that they're also extremely concerned about that. But um, the water's close to 90 degrees. You just dive in and your arms feel like jello. Um, we've kind of been talking a lot about that with our general heat prep. We don't have access to a super hot pool here. Um, the pool I swim at at home in North Carolina gets quite hot during the summer because there's no shade. And I mean, North Carolina summer where the heat index is over a hundred every day in July, like it gets pretty hot. Um, so I think that that was my, uh, swim specific prep. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to like put on your wetsuit and go to the pool and just get really hot while you swim to test it out. No, uh, fortunately <laughs> not. <laughs> so you said you think you do well in heat and humidity and obviously you did well at the Tokyo test event, which is like the same course. Why, why do you do well in it? Like what is, what makes you good at it? I feel like I'm really good at preparing for extreme conditions. I've had some of my strongest results in extreme cold, like in Edmonton or um, at one of the Super League Jersey events that was really cold and raining. Uh, And also in hot races in in Tokyo and also in Mexico. Um, I just feel like I'm really good at preparing myself um, for the situation and just making sure that I have the gear and um, talking to my team to make sure that I'm mentally prepared to handle the conditions. Because I feel like a big piece of extreme conditions is the mental preparation. How do you prepare mentally for that? I think one of the biggest things for me that I've that I think about leading in is um, for extreme cold races. The cold is physically painful for me, where it's like okay. pins and needles, like especially um, like the feet, like running. Um, and the heat is like very physically uncomfortable. Um, so I guess just kind of like visualizing those feelings. So that way it's not a surprise has made a big difference for me. Do you ever, and I'm only asking this cause like I was thinking about this cause I just did a really hot race, right? Do you ever then like dread how miserable it's going to be before the start? Like you're like, Oh God, this is going to be so painful. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. I mean, I think that just because you're good at something doesn't mean uh, you have to enjoy it. <laughs> and so, I, I think that there's also always a little bit of risk where um, you can be good at something, but if you're having a bad day, then the extreme conditions, um, it can just make it so much worse. Right, right, right. It can really take it the other direction quickly. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so obviously in Tokyo, it's women. Or no, it's men and then women and then the relay. You mm-hmm. guys don't know who's going to be on the relay till after the individual events, right? So you just have to like yeah. wait and see. Okay. Yeah. I'm definitely hoping to be selected. I've gotten to compete on um, two mixed relays for the U.S. at the World Triathlon Series level, and it's a ton of fun. Um, it's it's nice to compete for a team after doing college sports. Um, right. one of the things that was a big adjustment switching to triathlon after doing NCAA sports was just competing for myself instead of competing for a team where when you're with a team, you're always fighting for points. So I, I just really feel like I enjoy just like showing up for the team and just doing everything I can for something bigger than myself. Given that your squad is international, do you ever feel then like... I mean, like all the U.S. people compete for different squads or like train with different coaches in different squads during the year. And then you come together. Do you feel more like a team as the U.S. or more like a team with the people you see every day? Uh, It's definitely a mix. Um, I would say I'm pretty good friends with a lot of the U.S. athletes and I stay in touch with them. Um, But there's also something bonding um, about the people who you go through these crazy training sessions with. And um, I don't know, there's just like you just feel like also invested in their journey a little bit because you see their ups and downs. So it's also really good to see a friend who you train with, who overcame an injury or some sort of problem have like a breakout race. Do you guys ever help each other then during the Um, races? I wouldn't say that like we help each other, but I mean like we're happy for each other and um, yeah. All right. So how much, so obviously you pay a lot of attention to the, like the women's race and the strand, I'm sure and you like kind of have different race scenarios in your head. Do you also pay attention to the men's race or is that just like, eh? Yeah, I'll probably watch the men's race before my race in Tokyo this year. A lot of the times the men's races are after our race right. or if it's before, um, I don't know, maybe I'll get to watch the swim while I get ready to go to the race, but you can't really see that much. So it'll actually be, I mean, I'll watch on TV, but it'll be nice to kind of get to watch the men's race a little bit. I mean, both to to cheer for uh, my my teammates and my friends, but also uh, just as kind of like a, a preview for what we can expect the next day. Right, right. I would see, because I was going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to make a prediction for the women's race, because I always hear that, but I was going to ask you, what's your prediction for the men's race then? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I've been really impressed with Morgan's results this year. Yeah. I mean, he came out of a really tough time and he's just been so impressive. And he was really impressive on two totally different courses. I mean, Yokohama's flat, fast and flat, and Leeds is quite hilly and punchy in a strength course. So to show that kind of versatility leading into the, like a few months leading into the games, I think is really promising and impressive. For sure. For sure. What other, are you allowed to watch other Olympic events? Cause I was going to say, what other Olympic events are you excited about while you're there? I don't think we're allowed to. So I watched a okay. webinar today <laughs> where they were like, they're real allocating tickets, but you can't spectate at an event. That's not your sport. If you have close contact with athletes. And I was like, I don't, I don't even know what to make of that. <laughs> So I don't, I don't think we're going to be allowed to. So I'm just writing it off. So I'm not disappointed. Okay. Uh, my husband and I had hoped to go to track together um, when things were going to be normal last year, but I don't think that's going to happen this year. 
Right. It is a little confusing. We'll have to see how it all it all plays <laughs> out. And so I know, I mean, obviously all the authors I've talked to, like none, no one's really thinking past Tokyo, but what else do you have planned then the rest of this year, like after after the games? There's a few World Series races that I'm interested in. Um, I'm not so sure about Montreal because it's just two weeks after mm-hmm. the mixed team relay and it's three days of racing. So that seems like a pretty big ask coming off of such a big event. But I'm for sure interested in Edmonton and Hamburg and probably Montreal as well. Or sorry, not Montreal, uh, Bermuda as well. Okay. Yeah, the Bermuda is going to be like the sprint and relay one, right? Yeah. And um, Montreal will actually be the same format. Okay. Are you better at the sprint or the Olympic? Um, I would say I've had pretty comparable results at both. And I mean, Super League is a little bit different, but it's probably the closest thing we've had to um, the new Eliminator format. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually interested to see how I go at that against a little bit bigger of a field. Right, because they're going to do the Eliminator format at Montreal and Bermuda, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then what are your like long? I mean, long term plans here? Are we gonna are you gonna come back for Paris? Are you gonna move on to seventy point three? Are you gonna take up mountain biking? Uh, I'm definitely not going to take up mountain biking, seriously. Um, but I do want to keep mountain biking. Um, I do plan to continue to race ITU through Paris, and I'd like to qualify for Paris. Okay, um, cool. I don't know if I see a future for myself in non-draft. I really enjoy the head-to-head aspect of draft legal racing. You're just always neck and neck with somebody, and I feel like that's that's really where I thrive. I'm not much of a time trialist. Um. So yeah, I, I want to stick with ITU and I, I'm really loving it right now. Why like right now specifically? Um, I just feel like I last year gave me a really fresh perspective and um, it's just been good to be able to come back into this year with a fresh, a fresh take on things. Okay. Um, all right. So we usually finish with a would you rather. So here's my question for you. Um, would you rather be in North Carolina training by yourself or with all your suitcases in Portugal training with the team? With all my suitcases in Portugal training with the team. (laughs) You're like, easy. Yeah. Might have to mail something home, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for chatting with us and good luck in Tokyo. Thank you. Thanks to Ryan and Summer for talking with us. Stay tuned for more Olympics next week. Keep listening and keep training.